Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer, and eclectic witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. Before we begin today's episode, I'd love to let you know about a little something I've been cooking up in my cauldron. In 2022, I am releasing a course in the art of psychic divination through the Afterlight Institute. There will be a link to learn more in the description for this episode, and I'd be thrilled to share my knowledge with you. In this episode, I'm chatting with Leslie Linda, a witch priestess and fellow vegan. She has a master's in divinity through Vanderbilt University and is ordained by the Temple of the Divine Feminine. She is the author of the book Spinstress Craft, Magic for the Independent Witch. I'm so looking forward to sharing more of Leslie's work and wisdom with you today, so let's get into it. Here is a quick content warning before we start, as the topics that we're covering today may be triggering for some listeners. These topics include intimate partner or domestic violence, and I urge you to tread carefully or skip this particular episode if listening may cause more harm than good. You know yourself best. If you are experiencing domestic violence in Australia, please call 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737-732, or in the USA, 1-800-799-722. Leslie is joining us all the way from Maine in the USA. Hey, Leslie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me and welcoming me. It's wonderful. It's so great to have you here. Now, I'm sure you do so much more than what I've briefly introduced you as as well. So do you want to start off by telling us more about the work that you do in the witchy world? Well, my goodness. Um, as I'm sure it is for many of your listeners, my, my spirituality and my craft is really intrinsic to who I am. So I'm always learning myself how it's informing my life. I am an eclectic witch and um, I've learned heavily from Wicca. I kind of consider myself neo-pagan because um, I, I, I like a broad umbrella and I like to learn from a lot of different sources. And I did study religion with the thought of becoming a Christian minister like my father back in the day. Um, again, found I needed a broader umbrella, but as an activist, um, as you said, I am a, a vegan. Um, I came to that very organically too in a similar process kind of tandem to my neo-paganism, although not exactly. And I think we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Um, But my relationship to the rest of the earth and um, all life, both sides of the veil. So um, since 2001, uh, since I graduated from theology school, I was casting about to find my role in the world. And I wound up working in the domestic violence prevention movement is what we tend to call it here, or intimate partner violence is another shorthand term, but basically helping folks who've been dealing with coercive control in their home relationships. And um, so I've been working in rural Maine at a program like that since 2001. So this was my 20th anniversary at that work in September. And um, I became glad. I wasn't sure if I would stick with that work. It felt like a vocation, but I wasn't sure if I would try and move back into professional ministry through something like the Unitarian Universalists who welcome pagans into the covenant. I found that I um, could do my work in the world as a writer and as an activist and as an advocate, um, a victim's rights advocate, 
if my religion was empowering me from within and informing my work in those other ways, rather than trying to focus all of my attention on my religion, which kind of made it lose a little bit of its magic, if that can make sense, that somehow um, it was all mine when I wasn't having that kind of professional role full time. Um, so that's kind of how it informs who I am very deeply. I love that. There's definitely a, a link there with your every everyday stuff that you have to do and your spirituality, spirituality and religion. I think it needs to be interwoven. That's how it should be lived, if that makes sense. Yes. Now, I have recently read your book, Spinstress Craft, and I am really keen for you to share your own story of how you found witchcraft. You've just hinted there about uh, studying theology. So can you tell us a little bit about how you wound up becoming a witch? Yes. Um, it was a very organic process. Again, um, I'll say first to go back a little in my family history. My father, again, was a Christian minister, United Methodist minister. So I grew up seeing my father in a clergy role as a religious leader. Um, I didn't live with him. I lived with my mother in, in a different area. So I had kind of two tracks again, and my mom was um, a very eclectic spiritual person. Um, both of my parents have crossed over since um, then, so that's why I'm using the past pronoun. They're definitely still with me. Um, my mom was very eclectic, and she was raised by really strong, independent women who I kind of consider the spinstress archetype. My great-grandmother was a table tipping medium during the big spiritualism craze in the late 19th century here. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And my grandmother raised my mother kind of more along those lines. My grandmother did not attend church, which was very shocking in the to folks in small town Maine in the 40s when my mom was born. Um, they were kind of slightly on the fringe of society there in a way. And uh, my grandmother was fiercely independent. And um, my mom rem remembered being taken by her, her mom and her aunties to a spiritualist camp where they would hear readers and partake of different forms of divination and eclectic spirituality. So, so I come from that on the women's side, interestingly enough, since I'm practicing and woman empowering spirituality, but also from the, the noble dedication of professional ministry also in Christianity and other religions that are considered more book traditions and big global traditions. So I saw the ministry as an act of public service and intellectual curiosity. And I saw kind of more eclectic and female empowered spirituality, more as the wild, <laughs> unconstrained exploration of magic and intuition and um, empowerment, I think. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. I love that that red thread on your, you know, matrilineal line being just so different from society. I think that's a great indication of what's to come for you. Yes, and I haven't hit how I found witchcraft yet, so mm. I'll keep going a little. Um, <laughs> in my, um, I started. I kind of was feeling cast around a little in my 
bachelor of science degree, I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do as a vocation. And because I did admire my father's vocation as a Christian minister in a fairly progressive Protestant denomination, um, I went that route and I explored it. And so after I got a kind of generic sociology degree in the end for my undergraduate degree, where I just kind of bagged up all the different kinds of studies I'd done and finally got a diploma because <laughs> it was time. I think it took me seven years to finish because I kept exploring and moving all over the United States, you know, in different programs, exploring different tracks. And um, when I looked for a theology program, I found Vanderbilt because um, Oberlin Divinity College at Vanderbilt is a Masters of Divinity program. It's not, it's like Harvard in that way, which are two fair, you know, fairly unusual programs in the United States where they're not um, Christian denomination affiliated, which tends to be called a seminary. So they aren't owned by one Christian denomination and there's more of a broad track available in those kinds of schools that are divinity schools. So um, Vanderbilt is where I went more because of the program than any connection to the college or Nashville, Tennessee, where it is. I had never lived there before, but so I went off to, <laughs> as I had been doing, moving around the states looking chasing programs more than anything else, chasing myself, I suppose. And um, we call it work study when you're studying in college here. And as part of your financial aid, you can work a job at the university. And one of the jobs I had was at the Divinity School Library. So it's a really impressive collection in the Vanderbilt Library overall that's only theology books, only religious books and books on those topics. So I was doing my job shelving books one night and um, that's how I found myself in this little tiny section with a little label on it with the white tape and the black letters women's spirituality and I was like what on earth is this because I was kind of feeling like around peg in a square hole or whatever the analogy is you know not quite fitting in I think it was again, my roots and my intellectual and spiritual curiosity and the two different sets of ideas and concepts that brought me to the religious quest didn't quite put me in a category with many of my peers who came in really, really firmly rooted in a very specific, mostly Christian tradition where they were just purely looking to get to the pulpit, you know, and in some cases to academia but I was still trying to really find myself. And when I found the women's spirituality section, um, we're talking like Rhianne Eisler, um, Chalice in the Blade type of stuff, or Z Budapest was in there kind of shockingly that they put somebody so like, you know, Dianic in, in that section. Um, let's see, um, Carol Christ, those, those, uh, there was a little bit of Starhawk or fictional work mostly, not her straight up Wicca. <laughs> um, so they were in there and I just started pulling them out and reading them one after the other and getting more and more excited and suddenly found like the round hole for the round peg, you know, kind of like, oh my goodness, this is what I am. And being kind of young and naive, I thought, well, this is in the Divinity Library because it's an accepted tradition in this <laughs> big 
university and I'll go running into my classes and say, this is what I am. But it wasn't quite so simple. I encountered a lot of, op you know, I want to know if I want to call it opposition, but kind of most of the teachers in those kind of programs are pretty dismissive of those concepts of um, Maria Gimbutas's work about women uh, goddess traditions. Mm. And how do we interpret the goddess figurines that get unearthed through archaeology digs? Are they, you know, all sorts of, you know, kind of dismissive of the writing of folks like Maria Gimbutas or Rihanna Eisler that it's too fringe, it's too new, you can't prove it, quote unquote, you know, these could be pornography, they could be, you know, like girly mud flaps on trucks just because there are millions of them in the United States doesn't mean it's a religious cult. So there were all sorts of kind of ideas that kind of swatted me down a little but I I have just enough of that matrilineal in uh, independent streak that that just made me dig my heels in even more and be like nope <laughs> this is what I this is what I believe and this is what I'm doing and so that was my journey in divinity school I even went on a biblical archaeology dig in Israel and learned about archaeology and how Really, it's very um, subjective how the academics interpret what comes out of the ground. And it was kind of shocking to me and opened up my view even wider. So I was pretty thoroughly like shaken in any solid footing in a mainstream Christian denomination to the point where I would want to take a pulpit and be a religious leader in any one tradition like that. So um, I came home to Maine and just started working jobs but I found my vocation at the domestic violence movement. And I think I already touched on that. And um, I found Kay Gardner's Temple of the Feminine Divine, her ICM Musicum in Bangor, Maine. And if folks are familiar at all with Kay Gardner, she was a, um, a wonderful musician. She did a lot with um, sound therapy and um, started the temple in Bangor. And she had been ordained in Ireland by the... Um, the Fellowship of Isis, um, another kind of neo-pagan group, and um, they let us hive off and kind of sponsored us. So I was technically, I think, ordained by them too, or under their auspices, because Kay started the, our temple and she has passed away since. But um, that's where I was ordained as a neo-pagan priestess and found a community locally to do that. So that's some of my journey, not all of it, because I did study a lot, as I'm sure a lot of folks do when you're finding, finding this tradition and kind of organically, again, find books or teachers or groups and gather, gather information and see where it takes you, which I think is one of the most exciting parts of what I call neo-paganism or witchcraft. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And I'm curious, whereabouts did you find the the inspiration for this book? And you mentioned that some of those books in the divinity section were, you know, it's kind of more Dianic Wicca, which is very woman focused and your book is too. Do you think that really shaped your own craft and then inspired this, this book to come out from, from within you? So one of the first, um, besides Z Budapest and Starhawk, who were both doing a lot of woman identified or feminist stuff, a lot of um, a lot of politically informed work, mostly in California, those two. And um, another one was Shekinah Mountain Water. Um, and her book, Ariadne's Thread, was one of the, and I mentioned this in early parts of my book, I um, 
did the whole book like a um, a project with one of my best friends who was living in California at the time. And that was how I got a lot of support while I was in theology school is I had at least one friend who was interested in the same thing as me. And so um, the Ariadne's thread book was very, it was also kind of Q plus or um, I use the term Q plus for like queer friendly like LGBTQ and when you say Q plus in the states you're leaving room for all the other letters that folks may want to claim in a um, in a spectrum like that so um, Ariadne's thread her book was Dianic and it also talked about um, I believe she was talking about lesbian crafts specifically and how how her own journey was informing her magic and her ritual and the way she related to the divine and her partners and all of that. So in those early stages of my learning, I just saw this as a really inclusive religion and um, some, some place where there was room for women and men and for folks who wanted to identify in other ways as um, I don't think we were more talking in the 90s as much about Q plus and transgender identities and the rest of the spectrum, non-binary, any of that. But I did, as I read and I learned, I also encountered criticism that a lot of um, neo-paganism was too polarizing and it was like there's male energy and there's female energy and there have to be both or you know the battery won't light or you know the battery won't mm. run without without a man or a woman very binary can't it it's it's yes. very black and white and one criticism that has been out there of dianic witchcraft in particular is the the woman focused but very womb focused like you can't practice mm-hmm. if you don't have a womb which is absolutely incorrect and I think it's fantastic that in your book you've you've included all uh, all inclusions of all women's and the way people identify whether they're trans or non-binary uh, and flowing into that feminine side. So fantastic on that point. Wonderful, thank you. And um, I don't know if we're going to touch on this again too, but you um, you may notice folks who look at the book that women is spelled in a different way um, with an X in it where there isn't normally one and that's just my little signal which Llewellyn was wonderful I'm so supportive of like using that spelling and um taking a little bit of a risk I feel like you know to point out um we're not just talking about a binary association of what women are and I wanted to organize the book in Maiden Mother and Crone, but in Mother, I wanted to deal with folks who don't don't have children and how we also embody the mothering energy, which can be a factor for um, men, non-binary folks, transgender folks also, and just, you know, women who have not had biological children. I want to make room for everyone. I think that's fantastic. And it's something that you don't see a lot of. And I I do think as well that using the term women with the X in there, I think it's fantastic because it does, it makes you stop and think and it makes you reconsider. And being so frequently used in the book, it is a feminine book, right? It's about this feminine mm-hmm. ideal and this feminine power. It makes you reconsider constantly the idea of what a woman is and what that pertains and that it is wider and more open than what we've always been told. So I think that's great. And I love that Llewellyn was really supportive of that. And it is, 
could be seen as a risk, but I think it's a fantastic one. It's almost a uh, showing that this is the way we're going to lead forward. So other people can come into this space and also use this sort of terminology. And I will put it out there if anyone is deciding to read the book and you do find it jarring or uncomfortable, lean into that. Why is it uncomfortable? What, what, is, what is it telling you about yourself? Look into it like a trigger and we can look behind that and see what conditionings we've been led to believe about our idea of woman. Exactly, exactly. That's what I was going for. And I, I take some risks myself in working through that and in the book in ways that I don't necessarily solve, you know, I sometimes I think I trowel up some things about gender and sexuality and things like that, that I made absolutely no effort to resolve for the reader. I wanted to empower everybody the way I want to be empowered to have a process through the book and do, do exploration. And like you said, lean into it. Oh, if there's something there that really excites you or really makes you nervous, lean into both of those, right. And see, see what's going on. I think that's one of the really exciting parts of, of neo-paganism or witchcraft, religion in general. I agree. I agree. I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast. I ask because this series is a labor of love. And if you like what you're hearing, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. And you call yourself a spinstress. I mean, it's spinstress craft. So can you explain a little bit about what that term means to you and what you were hoping it would embody through your work? Yeah, I kind of, honestly, I came about that concept working on the project. It isn't something that goes way back for me, but um, it had been floating around because of the concept of the spinster, um, which women of my generation have encountered many times. It was definitely still, when I was growing up, it was a a bad thing. You don't want to be a spinster. That's a terrible thing, you know? Um, And I I looked more into the history of that word when I was preparing the book, but I already knew some of this, that it, um, um, it was used as a very derogatory term for an unmarried woman and still is to a great extent. Um, and what it act, I'd also heard folks like, um, some of the folks like Z Budapest or folks of that generation of writing about women's spirituality or Dianic Craft, Mary Daly mentioned the spinstress in a couple of her books, um, Gynecology and the Goddess, Goddess Father, I believe. Um, and she had an idea also of it the weaving and spinning like the fates or you hear so much mythology when you're looking at old world religions and mythology about the weaving and the magic of of weaving which is so um so often performed by goddesses in the lore of history since it was women's you know task so often and an interesting cultural factor like coming up through the industrial revolution in the 19th century in western culture the spinstress was a profession. It was just a job. It was, um, but because it was women who were going into the, during the industrial revolution, they were becoming factories for doing things like textile work, whereas they used to be 
you spin it at home from your sheep or whatever, you know, then there were women employed in factories and earning money, right? So they were like career girls. They were independent, whether they were earning for their family, whether they were a girl that their family put out to work or whatever they were supporting, they were earning income by being spinsters. And that was just a technical term for their job. But the fact that they were independent and they were earning money started to gather stigma. And that's where that term spinster came from as um, women who did that job were able to live without getting married. But that had to be, there had to be some stigma put around that to keep too many women, I think, from going out. I think that was a big factor. And um, so that's where that comes from. It's kind of running tandem track with old maid. It's the same kind of idea. And um, I, I think I mentioned in the book, if it was a part that got left in that I, I working at the domestic violence project, folks donate games and toys and things like that to our programs. And that once I was at work and I found this card deck that was called Old Maid and it had all the pictures that were caricatures kind of making fun of spinsters and old maids, you know, mm -hmm. making them look, you know, dowdy and not attractive and bitter looking or just comical, like, look at her. She didn't succeed somehow as a woman because she didn't get married. And I was like, what is this doing in a <laughs> domestic violence program? Yeah. We, we, we were built by feminism. We were built by women housing and supporting and helping each other in the 1960s and 70s were grounded in feminist grassroots activism and of all places, how would this end up here? And it was by people not thinking critically about what that term meant. And so I literally just changed the word to spin stress. So I could, again, kind of like the spelling of women to like cue people like this is not, this is not that. I want us to look at it in a new way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you've done that and you've uh, woven, if excuse the pun, you've yes. woven a very, okay. uh, <laughs> very beautiful idea and storyline through it. And I loved the start of the book. You take everyone through almost like a guided visualization of meeting the fates and they're weaving these threads. And it was just this beautiful idea. And I just forgive everyone out there who hasn't read this other book I'm about to mention. There's a book called The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, and there's a new series about to come out on Amazon Prime. I'm so excited. Anyway, it's a very, very intense fantasy novel series of like 14 books. But they often say in there, the, we the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. And it just, that kept coming through when I was reading your book, as in like this, this idea of fate and being tied together with karma and destiny and all of those sorts of things and having these little threads that we can pull out and change and change the color of this thread and let's um, change the picture of how this all looks in totality and how we you know join threads with another thread that might be coming into our lives and make a totally different tapestry over here it was just this really beautiful idea and way of looking at our spirituality and our lives uh, and that we kind of, we have control, but not total control. And it was just really cool. I really enjoyed that. Nice. It's a great visualization. Good. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm very glad. Yeah. And I, I did also like the, the weaving aspect just purely because my grandmother is a textile weaving artist. So she weaves, we've got many rugs in our house that she has woven for us and hand knotted and all of these things. I just think it's such a beautiful old artwork that people don't do anymore so it's almost like bringing us back to that 
uh, ancestral route because it was something that women did for centuries and centuries, this spinning and weaving and textile and working with fabrics in that manner that yeah. is almost lost, but there's a remembering there. I think this yeah, is back to the forefront. Yeah, the beauty, like you're saying, the nuance and the mm -hmm. skill, which gets so often diminished in things that have been seen as women's work, quote this unquote. Skill. But, right. It's hard. It is hard work and it's hard on the body as well. You wouldn't think mm. that, but my Nana has tried to get me to do it. And I sit there on this hard little chair and leaning over, throwing the little shuttle through each one. And I'm like, oh, this is tiring, Nana. This is so hard to do. <laughs> Upper arm workout. You could yeah. start selling it as like cardio or sculpting. Yeah. Or <laughs> and <laughs> then it'll catch right back. And you gotta you gotta think about it as well. There is so much thought process behind the patterns that are woven in there. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's an absolute skill, definitely. Definitely. Uh, so now this book deals with the aspects of the triple goddess. So the maiden mother crone and ways to tap into that energy, which mm -hmm. is your favorite energy to embody and why? Mm. Well, I'm going to be hard to pin down again, but I think um, <laughs> I moved through them and I try to point this out in the book that I don't see them as related to chronological age mm -hmm. that um, the the traits or the aspects of the human experience that I gather in those areas don't pertain directly to our, our biological age. So um, like the maiden energy is more about self-discovery and intuition and adventure and independence, um, kind of the playful energy of youth but that we can reclaim at any time in our lives by picking up or uh, starting an interest that really empowers us and gives us that spark so um, with mothering and again I wasn't basing it on um, the biological bearing of children at least not exclusively so it had to do in in my section with creativity and nurturing and um, protectiveness, how we protect the earth, how we protect our neighborhoods, how we protect our own lives, how we engage in activism or art because we are bringing things to the world that benefit others at the same time that they fulfill our lives. So to me, that was the mothering energy. And um, again, talking about how it's important to note that even women who have born children don't always have the experience of raising them. So it really is so much more than just thinking about it, not, not to devalue that, but again, to broaden it um, and to broaden the concept of women again also and, um, and families. And for men that want to tap into that mother archetype as well. So that mm -hmm. That is something they can do. It's not, you know, oh, what about the men? They're all left out there. They're included in this. Right. As well. Yeah, totally. And um, before I move on to the crone, I could say definitely it, it, the book um, occasionally does encourage like, and so there are men are always their fathers, brothers, you know, uncles, all, you know, there's all the spectrum lovers. There's a full spectrum of male identity, you know, that can interact with, you know, this material. There's also, of course, the non-binary where we might claim we might be more closely affiliating with more of our, um, our male 
identified aspects. We might prefer to explore that identity for ourselves. There's just, I'm trying to broaden it in there. And I, there is a meditation for encountering um, the God, the male divinity in the book also. I think it's in the mother section, but um, it's not exclusively about and for women, although I'm trying to make the space where we can explore the identity of women. So it's, it's not totally exclusive, but you have to pick, you have to pick a spot to stand somewhere and it can't cover totally everything. But for the crone section, it's more about, I tried to add material in there about expertise and claiming our authority and our sovereignty. So it's about more owning our power. My section on the crone aspect, it's about experience. It could be a a corporate executive can claim that expertise, you know, not being afraid to claim our power, not being, not feeling like our power or authority or expertise are somehow vices or something that we shouldn't be very proud of because gosh, that wouldn't be <laughs> nice of us, you know, so the old socialization kind of things. And my material about magic and more like, divination and occult is in that section because um, it felt like that was another place of coming home, a place of sovereignty and really coming home to ourselves and to closing cycles, starting new cycles. There is material in, in that section about death and dying and um, experiencing grief. So I liked as well that you included ancestral work under the mm -hmm. crew. Yeah, there's some work on working in um, on consecrated ground, um, tending graves. That's a big tradition in Maine and in New England where I live is um, I was raised to go out and like scrub the tombstones and put plant flowers and really tend graves at a certain time of every year, um, May, <laughs> Memorial Day weekend, everybody would go out and tend to their ancestors and make sure, or even to strangers like veterans, make sure um, graves are tended. So I love that. I love that. We don't really have any traditions like that here in Australia, at least not that I've been a part of, but I think it's really beautiful. So uh, it may be as, you know, as life goes on and gravestones appear in our family, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to think of. <laughs> Maybe that's something that we could, we could embody as well. Cause I thought that was a really beautiful tradition to go there and, and clean the graves of your loved ones. And again, of veterans as well. And I think it's a really nice way to bring that crone energy in uh, that mm -hmm. elder wiser energy. It's nice. Yeah. There's actually, yeah, I think wonderful. that was my favorite part of the book, the whole crone section, even though I'm probably in my mother archetype, I've just had a baby like that physical mother archetype, but the crone section was really like calling to me. So interesting mm -hmm. that you can weave through all of them in similar times. I really think you can. Yeah. That's an excellent example. It's like, it's really not about your, your age or even one thing that you're really focusing on right now. You you're still always kind of sampling from the different aspects of the goddess and I wasn't even sure whether to organize the book like that but I thought well this is a way again to broaden all of these concepts so that's why I decided to use them. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good way to section it as well and 
gives it meaning towards those areas. And you've included a lot of spell work as well in each of them. And they just kind of make sense with how they're sat. So it's good. I found like the maiden aspect right now, not calling to me. So I kind of like flicked through that quite a lot. And then crone, I was like inhaling all of the words. So (laughs) I think people might find that. And then at another section of my life, I might flip back and go, oh, now I want to get into this maiden stuff a little bit more. So we we should note that the maiden section has a really nice chapter on sex and sex magic though, that I think can also apply to all the different chronological ages of our lives, but it was where I chose to put it um, because of that whole aspect of adventurousness and exploration and finding ourselves. But if you want to learn about the ancient history of sex toys and (laughs) how to consecrate them (laughs) for ritual and um, just really empowering yourself, again, outside the spectrum, um, there's a ritual for coming out. There's different stuff in there to try and be inclusive, but really empower us to think about sex and sexuality and the magical aspects of sex as well as the spiritual. I love that. I've, I've got a very popular uh, blog post, which is on um, crystal pleasure ones or crystal dildos. And so I love when I see other uh, women out there in the world talking about these parts of ourselves, our sexual sides that are often, you know, they're often covered over or hide that, or it's shameful. And there's all these thoughts and fears around it. It's like, no, it's fine. That's a part of us. It's a human, basic human need to have a sexual side, unless you're asexual. Uh, But touch and pleasure through touch is, is totally normal and fine. And I love the use of things like crystals. Uh, you mentioned yoni eggs a lot in there. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, crystal pleasure ones and that sort of thing. As long as you're safe around the type of crystal, please don't use something like a selenite wand. That is yeah. not going to go down well. So <laughs> if you want more info on safety on that, read that blog post I wrote. But yeah, I think it's it's a great way to incorporate that energy into your spiritual practice as well. Awesome. Now, lastly, I wanted to talk about the fact you're vegan too, and a small caveat here, I too am vegan, and this is not meant to be a we're better than you or you need to do what we're doing type of question. That's definitely mm-hmm. not my intent for anyone listening. Uh, but I am curious to hear if being a vegan uh, plays a part for you, Leslie, in your spiritual practice, because it definitely does for me. So how does that sort of fit with your spiritual worldview? Yes, I'm, I think it's great that you ask that, and I didn't realize that you were also vegan <laughs> before we just met. But um, again, like my like my neo paganism, um, my veganism really informs who I am at a really deep level, and it's completely inseparable from my religion um, and my moral compass. And again, that's just my personal stance. Just like I I love the religion that my dad practiced, but I found my home in a slightly different area, you know, to really put my roots down into. And that's my veganism also. And um, it's interesting that you asked how connected they were. They're so connected that I wrote a manuscript, a several hundred page manuscript called um, Harm Ye None, which is about neo-pagan vegans. And I was marketing that when, when I submitted it to Llewellyn and they said, um, we're not really ready to do this right now, but we like your writing style. So can you pitch us some other ideas? And in this mad scramble <laughs> to pitch an idea, 
Um, well, they suggested some things like writing about hand fasting or some, and I wasn't sure, it took me a little bit, but I thought then that's when I came up with the idea for spinstress um, to incorporate women's empowerment and politics and religion and all of that. But I was selling a vegan pagan book at the time. And in, um, in gathering all of that, I studied ancient pagans and um, like, um, oh, Pythagoras, of course, is one of the early ones that folks who interacted with our relationship with non-human animals. And I do, I use that term deliberately like many vegans to say, I consider humans animals. I don't think that we're separated from the ecosystem and that informs my paganism also. So um, studying actually a lot of ancient Western pagans wrote about other animals and our relationship to them and um, practiced some form of vegetarianism, many of them. The, the term before the 1850s for a person who didn't eat meat was Pythagorean in, in a lot of places because of Pythagoras. And um, then in the 1850s, somebody came up with the term vegetarian, but you know, they're so intrinsic and um, ancient pagans were talking about this stuff and, and they're just so deeply connected. But um, the Sanskrit traditions use the term ahimsa, which means injure none. And so, in, and it's prominent in yoga and some other, you know, traditions where it's like most good, least harm is the concept of ahimsa. And as a neo-pagan who was influenced by Wicca and I was thinking, oh, the reed is harm none. So they seemed very similar and in playing with that, that's where my concept for, for that book came from. And one of my fellow Mainers, Zoe Weil, um, her name is, goes to one of the Unitarian churches nearby, but um, wrote a book called Most Good Least Harm. And um, I really liked that concept of that's what my that's I, I am an ethics based vegan that's why I'm doing it because of my belief system I'm not you know doing it only for personal health that's like a that's an added benefit to why I do it but um the concept of most good least harm and I explained in that manuscript and went through this whole process that I think that the practice of harmlessness in my veganism is um it's not meant to be perfection. In fact, I think I agree. Right. In fact, trying for perfection causes harm mm -hmm. in ways because it, it can push us off the path because we can't be perfect or it can make others feel like, well, if you can't be perfect, then there's no point in doing this. And there's various reasons why I think the very idea of perfectionism causes harm. So it doesn't, isn't a part of my practice, but I see veganism is kind of a measuring stick or a ruler for trying to make my daily choices of least harm. So. Yeah. What came first for you? Was it uh, your spiritual witchcraft practice or was it veganism or did they happen at the same time? They kind of started to happen at the same time, but I was still doing battle with cheese. <laughs> I think cheese is the last one to go for everyone maybe eggs and like hidden hidden eggs too mm -hmm. but yeah I um I was vegetarian I was what they call here ovo lacto vegetarian I don't know if that's a broad term but so I was still eating eggs and cheese but um had gone completely off of meat 
uh, at the time when I described earlier of finding those books in the divinity school. And it took me a while to work my way into veganism. I started meeting some vegans and trying to wrap my head around letting those other things go and experimenting. It took me a few years. And then one of my other friends just said, hey, let's do, it was actually 2011. So it took me a while to completely go vegan. But one of my, the same friend that I did the check in a mountain water book with actually, hmm, important friend, her name's Gwen. Hi, Gwen. And so um, she was like, let's do the vegan challenge. I don't know if it was PETA. I mean, you know, sometimes uh, an animal advocacy group will try and help people by putting out a booklet and some recipes and say, try going vegan for a month. And, and she was like, let's do that. Cause she knew I was interested in, I'd been moving in and out of that and experimenting with cookbooks and I was like oh when do you want to start and she was like I started three days ago so <laughs> I dropped everything I went running to the store and started buying everything that they said was vegan because I thought I had to try so hard but I gradually learned that so many things we eat already don't have animal products in them and I love accidental vegan stuff I love Oreos right? accidentally vegan I love it yes <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what I, I talk about that in that manuscript too is that I learned you know and I started to think well really most of us if you think about it we have a rotation of foods that we like and we only occasionally experiment wildly outside of our our normal menu so once I had learned what I liked and what I normally bought that was vegan and I focused on that all the difficulties of choosing what to eat just kind of fell away and I was off and running so <laughs> yeah definitely it's it's funny I went vegetarian first uh, so I was vegetarian and it was it was probably just after my spiritual awakening had started I guess that I that I decided to go vegan and I'm a very strange, my, my husband hates me for it because I make decisions inside my own head before I tell anyone else about it. And then suddenly I'm like, by the way, I'm vegan now. <laughs> and he's like, what? When did this happen? How long have you been processing this information? <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about it for like three or four months. And then suddenly I've decided now. He's like, you could have communicated that. So I'm working on that communication side because it just kind of goes, it's like a little uh, earworm. It gets into your head. And you think, oh, maybe I should, no, I don't know. We'll just think about it. And then suddenly it's, it's becomes a part of your identity. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think for me personally, going vegan was instrumental in my own spiritual awakening. I, I actually found differences in how I could perceive energy and in my psychic mm -hmm. work and in my readings and things like that, which I'm not saying people have to do that to upskill in that level, but I think I felt so much more aligned in my own values. Like I was living my morals that it just helped strengthen me from the inside mm -hmm. out, which was fantastic. And again, I, I absolutely agree on your idea of that, that whole perfection thing. I mean, there is animal products in most medications. And so I have a medical clause. I, I just don't look it up for medications because if I, if I need the medication, I need the medication. It's fine. I, yeah. ate, you know, I ate all that stuff my whole life. A little bit more, yeah. you know, if, if it has to happen, it has to happen. So uh, very, very much in that fluid sort of range around a few things. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's good that you make that point, but it can be, right. it can be separate from spiritual practices, but everyone that I've spoken to predominantly that has a witchcraft or at least an earth-based 
religion, I've I've found that they've said it, it absolutely forms a really strong part of their religious views. Yeah, um, not that I ascribe to his personal decisions in a lot of his life, but the poet Percy Shelley was kind of an early plant-based eater that we later said, oh yeah, well, he was basically vegan, but he wrote this very pagan poem called Queen Mab, and it was so vegetarian that he had to write a guidebook to help people understand it. So his book, Vindication of Natural Diet, and you can get it online. Um, he goes through all the philosophers who are mostly ancient Western pagan philosophers that that he learned why he didn't want to eat animals and why it was better for the environment and food insecurity and justice and environmentalism. They were talking about all of that in the early 1800s. So Vindication of Natural Diet as a handbook to help people understand the poem Queen Mab. He got into all of that. Wow. And that's so long ago as well. And yet people right. these days are still like, what is this new age veganism thing? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so old. <laughs> and there's, it's there's religions. So I mean, you've got Buddhism, uh, you've got uh, Hindus as well. Yeah. Uh, there is a Seventh-day Adventist, a vegetarian. Like there are yeah. so many religions that are really well. Seventh-day Adventist isn't that old, but Hinduism is absolutely Buddhism, super, super yeah. ancient religions. And They've been living vegetarian for a very long time. So uh, it's not a new thing. It's not that scary. Yeah. We're not going to die of protein deficiency. <laughs> <laughs> nope, definitely not. I eat like a queen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ditto. Awesome. All right. So that's uh pretty much all I wanted to talk about today. I'm really, really grateful that you were able to come on and chat with me about your book and your views on incorporating all forms of women into spinstress craft. It's been very fascinating. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, can you let us know where people can find you online if they wanted to get in touch with you or see the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, the book is posted on Llewellyn's website, Spencer's Craft, but um, I have my own website. And to keep it simple, I actually do have the dom domain name, which is just Leslie J. Linder, just like my book title, um, dot com. So fantastic. I will pop that link in the description as well for the episode. Uh, so if you haven't yet, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much. If you would like to book in with me for a tarot or astrology reading, you can do so at suburbanwitchery.com. You'll also find me as Suburban Witchery on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm in all the spots. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you have a lovely day wherever you are in the world today. Bye for now.